2 Corinthians chapter 4. We're going to be looking at verses 7 through 18 tonight. We're actually going to come back and, and look at the, the first few verses in depth on Sunday, but we're going to kind of get a wide view of these verses tonight. You guys ready? 2 Corinthians chapter 4. If you were a preacher and you could have any gig in the world, sorry, I'm a musician, so call it a gig. If you could have any gig in the world at any time in history, whose gig would you want? Rick Warren, Purpose Driven Life. He's like a national bestseller in demand all over the place, I'm sure, TV, radio, all that stuff. Calvary Chapel, the movement, has a few people that you might be interested in their gig. Chuck Smith, Bob Coy down in Fort Lauderdale, Greg Laurie, Harvest Crusades. What about Charles Spurgeon? You guys know who he was? 19th century. Um, he was amazing. He was called the Prince of Preachers. Now, that would be pretty exciting to have Charles Spurgeon's gig. Walter Thornbury wrote this about one of his... Uh, one of his times when he was speaking. A congregation consisting of 10,000 souls, streaming into the hall, mounting the galleries, humming, buzzing, and swarming, a mighty hive of bees eager to secure at first the best plates and at last any place at all. After waiting more than half an hour, if you wish to have a seat, you must be there at least that space of time in advance. Mr. Spurgeon ascended his tribune to the hum and rush and trampling of men succeeded uh, a low, concentrated thrill um, and murmur of devotion, which seemed to run at once like an electric current through the breast of everyone present. And by this magnetic chain, the preacher held us fast, bound for about two hours. If you could have any gig in the world, in any time in history, of any preacher, who would you want? What about Paul's? Yeah, Paul's. I mean... No, wait, maybe, maybe not. <laughs> Second Corinthians chapter 11, you guys know, you don't have to turn there by now. Let's see, there's five whippings, three times beaten with rods, once stoned, I mean with rocks, three, three times shipwrecked. Let me read some more to you. A night and a day I've been in the deep, he says, in journeys often, in perils of water, in perils of robbers, in perils of my own countrymen, in perils of the Gentiles, in perils in the city, in perils in the wilderness, in perils in the sea, in perils among false brethren, in weariness and toil, in sleeplessness often, in hunger and thirst, in fastings often, in cold and nakedness. Maybe not so much, Miss Gig. I wonder when the sword finally separated his head from his body, I wonder how many people were standing in line to get that gig. Second Timothy 4, verse 9, Paul's complaining about a colleague, Demas. He says to, to Timothy, be diligent to come to me quickly, for Demas has forsaken me, having loved this present world and has departed for Thessalonica. When you read that, you're like, Demas is forever the loser that quit on Paul. But I mean, if you were going to interview Demas, don't you think he'd say, uh, hello, have you read chapter 11 of 2 Corinthians? I mean, he would say, if, if you want Paul's ministry, go for it, but I'm done. And yet, as we look at 2 Corinthians chapter 4, as we saw last Sunday, verse 1, look what he says. 
Paul speaks in, well, glowing terms about this ministry that God has given him. He says, chapter 4, verse 1, Therefore, since we have this ministry, as we have received mercy, we do not lose heart. Again, you kind of have to back up and and see all of chapter 3. He's talking about this glorious ministry that he's been given. This whole section, Paul is speaking in glowing, glorious terms about his ministry, about this glorious new covenant that he gets to share with the whole world. Look at verse 18 of chapter 3. You can back up just a bit. Chapter 3, the last verse, he says, but the way this glorious covenant works is we are uh, looking in this mirror and we are growing from glory to glory. As we look at Christ in this mirror, our face is shining just like Moses's. And then we saw on Sunday, he says, look, the devil tries to veil it, but God is just too glorious. Look at verse six, chapter four, verse six, for it is God who commanded light to shine out of darkness, who is shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. <laughs> you wouldn't know from listening to this, all the stuff that Paul's gone through, that he's going through. Paul speaks in glowing terms about this privilege that he has in ministry. He basically says, look, I've been given a glorious ministry. I get to talk about this new covenant. He he said, I've been given a glorious message on my lips. He says, I get to tell everybody I meet, you get to have a relationship with the holy and living God. He says, most of all, I've been given a glorious Messiah in my heart. All of this glory, all of this privilege that Paul is speaking of now begin. Look at verse 7. Paul says, but we have this treasure, this glorious stuff. We have this treasure in earthen vessels. Now, we're going to spend a lot more time talking about these verses on Sunday. So I'm going to try to blow through them a little bit tonight. But let me ask you, why would God entrust such a glorious treasure? That is, this glorious message, the glorious ministry, the glorious Messiah. Why would he put such valuable things in jars of clay? Like Paul. Why would he put such valuable things in jars of clay like you and me? Well, he says, verse 7, But we have this treasure in earth and vessels. Why? That the excellence of the power may be of God and not of us. That's why Paul said back in verse 5, look, we don't preach ourselves, but we preach Christ Jesus as Lord. The point is, and we're going to go in at length on Sunday, that God chooses common clay vessels like you and me to transport his message, to give his ministry to to the people. And even more amazing, God houses his Messiah inside of you. God lets you carry around This wonderful Messiah. And the reason that he picks people like you and me is so that every time he does something amazing, people go, oh, I know that guy. It must be God. Verse 7, he says, but we have this treasure in earthen vessels that the excellence of the power may be of God and not of us. Look at tonight as, well, we're going to fly over the forest tonight. We're going we're gonna to see the whole forest, hopefully, and then on Sunday we're going to go and inspect the trees a little bit more. Tonight I hope to show you how Paul could continue to speak in such glowing terms about this ministry that left him bruised and battered. Verses 8 through 11, we will see 
how God shines through earthen vessels. In verses 12 and 15, we will see why the power of God shines through earthen vessels or for whom. And then verses 16 through 18, we really get to the crux of it and see what is it that motivated Paul. So verse 7, is, it's really important to know that verse 7 is key to understanding the rest of this chapter and Paul's perspective. You guys up for some more audience participation? I hope so. <laughs> no, not that. Look at verse 7. It says, but we have this treasure in earthen vessels, that the excellence of the power may be of God and not of us. He's talking about two things, basically jars of clay and the power of God inside it, right? So I'm going to read these next few verses. When I pause the first time, every, the first time of every phrase, you say, jars of clay. When I pause the second time, you say, that's the power of God. Get it? All right. Verse 8. We are hard-pressed on every side, yet not crushed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. We are persecuted, but not forsaken. We are struck down, but not destroyed. You guys see it? He talks about all the bad stuff that happens to us. He says, look, we're hard-pressed on every side. There's pressure. There's great trouble. How many of you guys can relate to that? It's because you're just jars of clay. But then he says, but the amazing thing is that we're not crushed. Well, that's the power of God. We're perplexed, confused, <laughs> I don't know which way to turn. It actually means to be at the end of your wits. He says, I'm at the end of my wits, but I'm not at my wits end. That's the power of God. Persecuted, it means to be chased down. He says, but I'm not forsaken. That's the power of God. He says, I'm struck down. I get knocked down, but he says, I always get back up. I'm not destroyed. That's the power of God. Let me ask you a personal question right off the bat. Those verses, do they describe you in whole? I mean, is it, or is it just the first half? Is it, well, yeah, I'm hard-pressed and I'm perplexed and I'm persecuted and I'm knocked down. It doesn't have to be that way. Matter of fact, it shouldn't be that way. What describes Paul is what should describe each one of us. Yeah, I'm hard-pressed, I'm under pressure, but I'm not crushed. Yeah, I'm perplexed, I'm not sure what to do next, but am I worried? Not particularly. Yeah, I'm persecuted. I'm, the circumstances around me are terrible. But am I forsaken? Certainly not. Well, yeah, I'm knocked down, but I always get up. Does that describe you? That's actually the normal, supposed to be the normal Christian life. But how does it work? Well, wait with me. We'll talk more as we get to uh, verses 16 and, and beyond. Don't look ahead. <laughs> now back to our exercise. When I pause, first you say, you guys have got it. And then when I pause again, you say, that's the power of God. Verse 10, we are always carrying about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus. That the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our body. 
For we who live are always delivered to death for Jesus' sake. That the life of Jesus may also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. That's power of God. Again, we're going to look at this more in depth on Sunday. But let me give you a little bit of teaser. Basically, if I had to encapsulate it in a nutshell, it's this. Resurrection is impossible without death. <laughs> Ever think about that? Now, try to name a resurrection that wasn't preceded by death. You might be thinking, well, Enoch or Elijah. No, that's not a resurrection. That would be an ascension. To be resurrected, to have a resurrected life, you've got to die first. By definition, resurrection requires death. The, uh, the life that Jesus talked about, the life more abundant, is impossible without death. Now, notice the words there. Again, we're going to go more in depth on Sunday, but the word manifest. You see it? That's one of my favorite words again. You get to illustrate it so easy. It just means to make something visible that's there, but you can't see it. Right? One more time. My Bible is here, but it's not manifest. Now, it's manifest. Right? So, to make the life abundant, the resurrection life manifest in your life, you know how it happens? Through death. The resurrection life in you becomes manifest to the world around you through death. Like when things in your life die, but you still live, people notice. That's Jesus manifest. When your job dies and you don't, people notice. When your car dies, but your patience doesn't, people notice. That's what these verses are talking about. When you are pressed on, but you are not depressed, people notice. When you are perplexed, but you're not in despair, people notice. When you are persecuted, but you, are not, you know you're not forsaken, people notice. When you are knocked down, but you keep getting up, that's the life of Jesus manifesting you. That is how the power of God shines through earthen vessels. Pretty heavy. What it means is... We're going to be looking at suffering. If we really want to be used, we will be looking at suffering. That's how the power of God shines through earthen vessels. Next, why does the power of God shine through earthen vessels? In other words, who benefits? Look at verse 12. He says, so then death is working in us, but life in you. On Sunday, Paul began this chapter, chapter 4, saying, but we do not lose heart because of, if you remember, One was because of this great ministry that's given to us. And two was because of the great mercy that's given to us. But here Paul shares one more secret about why he keeps going. Why he's the ever-ready bunny of the New Testament. And it's because not only the ministry he's been given and the mercy he's been given, but the mission field that God has given him. See, one of the reasons, we talked about this back in chapter 1, One of the reasons Paul could be so pressed so deeply, right? The word um, word persecution in the in the Greek is thlebo. It means to be pressed like beyond measure. It means to uh, press down like pressing of grapes. One of the reasons that Paul could do all this, he could be pressed so deeply without becoming depressed, was that he knew. Listen, people were watching. He knew that the Corinthians were watching, and that they were benefiting. 
No matter if it was good stuff that happened to him or bad stuff that happened to him. Turn with me to chapter 1. 2 Corinthians here, chapter 1. Just as a refresher, verses 6 and 7, Paul says, Now if, if we are afflicted, it is for your consolation and salvation, which is effective for enduring the same sufferings which we also suffer. Or if we are comforted, it is for your consolation and salvation. So how does the, the power of God shine through? So often it shines through affliction and endurance, through death and resurrection. But why does the power of God shine through earthen vessels, sometimes cracked pots? It's for the benefit of your mission field. What's your mission field? It's so that the people watching you will see Jesus made manifest. Who is watching you now? I mean, I am. (laughs) But in your affliction, the thing that you're going through right now, whether it's really good or really hard, Who's watching you? And what, are they, what determinations are they making about Jesus? Is he manifest in the things that you are experiencing? And what's another reason that Paul continued that he was so steadfast? Well, it's because he really believed what he preached. Look at verse 13. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 13. And since we have the same spirit of faith, according to what is written, I believed and therefore I spoke. We also believe and therefore speak. The sa- he says we have the same spirit of faith. The same spirit of faith as who? Well, I think it's the psalmist. Turn to Psalm 116. This is who he's quoting where he says, I believed and therefore I spoke. This was written in Psalm 116. Let me read with you um, maybe verse 3 and following. Psalm 116, verse 3, The pains of death surrounded me, and the pangs of Sheol laid hold of me. I found trouble and sorrow. He's talking about death here, right? He's talking about pressure, persecution. Then I called upon the name of the Lord. O Lord, I implore you, deliver my soul. He's talking about resurrection. Gracious is the Lord and righteous. Yes, our God is merciful. The Lord preserves the simple. I was brought low, death, and he saved me, resurrection. Return to your rest, O my soul, for the Lord has dealt bountifully with you. That's the life abundant. He says, you have delivered my soul from death, resurrection, my, ears, my eyes from tears and my feet from falling. I will walk before the Lord in the land of the living. I believed, here it is, therefore I spoke. He says, I am greatly afflicted. See, do you see it? In Psalm 116, the psalmist had this same ongoing dance with death and resurrection that Paul did. He says, I was brought low. You rescued me. The pains of death surrounded me. I called upon you. Paul had that same spirit of faith. You can turn back with me. Second Corinthians chapter four. Paul's basically saying, look, I, re- I don't know. Maybe he read it that morning. He's like, I, I read this psalm and that guy's speaking for me. That guy is talking about my life. He's describing my life, death and resurrection. 2 Corinthians 4, verse 13. He says, And since we have the same spirit of faith, according to what is written, I believed, and therefore I spoke, we also believe, and therefore speak, knowing that he who raised up the Lord Jesus will also raise us up with Jesus and will present us with you. Basically, Paul says, Another reason that I don't shut up 
although the whole world tells me to shut up, some of my enemies, even my friends say, Paul, you sure you want to do this? The reason I don't shut up is because I believe God that he's in the business of raising people up. I believe that God can raise me up. I wonder how many times did Paul have this conversation with himself? Okay, if I speak up now, this crowd may very well kill me. Okay, if they do, and I preach what is true, if I, if I actually pre- am preaching what is true, then God will raise me up. So then do I believe what I preach? He probably had that conversation with him and said, you know what, I do. So you can't shut me up. Second Corinthians 3, just back one chapter, verse 12, he says, because we have such great hope, we use great plainness of speech. He never hem-hawed. He never said, oh, well, the Bible says this, but, you know, maybe it means something else. He said, this is what it means. And he was bold because he believed God could raise him up. Proverbs 21, 28, listen to this. A false witness shall perish. A false witness will be shut up sooner or later. A false witness shall perish, but the man that hears, uh, that hears the truth speaks constantly. The, the new American standard puts it this way. A false witness will perish, but the man who listens to the truth will speak forever. The point is this. Belief and speaking are closely tied. I mean, you can only ask any salesman, you can only sell something that you really believe in. If you're having trouble speaking the gospel, should, should you ask yourself, do, do I really believe this? I mean, do I really believe what he's saying in his word? If you don't really believe, there will come a time when you, your mouth will be shut whether it's at the end of a blade or the barrel of a gun or in a restaurant instead of praying or in the face of a lawsuit if you're a preacher. There will come a time if you don't really believe what you're saying where you will fold when people call your bluff. I mean, do I really believe this stuff? Do I really believe this as a reality that so much so that when God tells me to speak, I'll speak and I know that he'll... Raise me from the dead if necessary. But notice something else. Verse 13. Paul's eye is on the prize here. Verse 13, he says, And since we have the same spirit of faith, according to what is written, I believed and therefore I spoke. We also believe and therefore speak, knowing that he who raised up the Lord Jesus will also raise us up with Jesus. And listen to this. And will present us with you. Paul says, okay, worst case scenario, we die. Well, God's already proven that he can raise the dead, Jesus. And worst case scenario, he raises us up and he says he presents us with you. Now, what does that mean? Not quite sure. It could, could mean a couple of things. To present means to place beside. Uh, some commentators say that maybe Paul is being a little sarcastic here because the Corinthians thought so highly of themselves. Hey, and maybe after, after we die and we're raised up again, we can be as you know, good as you. I don't know if Paul was doing that or not. But here's another idea. It could also mean, mean to present as an award. Like when you say, I present this to you. Picture this, an awards ceremony in heaven. Paul comes through the gates. There are teeming masses of saints and a huge group, maybe tens of thousands of people are standing over here. And Jesus says to Paul, 
See all those precious saints there? The precious saints of mine? Those are the ones who saw death and resurrection in you. And you led them to me. And then in mass, the 10,000 people say to Paul, thanks. In front of your king. Can you get much better of a reward than that? Jesus is watching the whole thing and tens of thousands of people are saying, thank you, Paul, for introducing me to my king. Now, that's speculation. We're not sure if he means present or present, but it definitely fits in the context because the winning of souls is definitely on Paul's mind here because look at verse 15. He says, for all things are for your sakes that grace, having spread through the many, may cause thanksgiving to abound to the glory of God. We've already touched on this. Paul says, all, all things, good and bad, everything that happens to me is good for you. He says, the King James Version puts it this way, for all things are for your sakes, listen to this, that the abundant grace might through the thanksgiving of many redound, that means to abound, to the glory of God. Three superlatives in the King James. I'm not sure why they left off the word abundant in, in the New King James. Three superlatives there. Abundant, he says, and many and abounding. So let me give you the, the New Doug translation. Basically what he's saying here in verse 15 is everything that happens to me works toward this end. There's a whole bunch of grace goes to a whole bunch of people and causes them to give a whole bunch of thanksgiving and God is glorified. Everything bad that happens to me, everything good that happens to me results in people noticing and God being glorified. The power, the glory of God comes bursting out of this little clay pot called Paul. Look at verse 16. He says, therefore... We do not lose heart. You guys see, the best way to describe this is Paul sees the big picture. He basically says, okay, let me get this straight. I, I get whipped and I endure it. And you Corinthians, when, when I get whipped and, and I endure it, you Corinthians go, wow, look at the power of God. I mean, he got whipped, but he, he keeps going. I get stoned. I get left for dead. And you guys know the picture. This was in Lystra and Derby. He's under a pile of rocks. They've already left him. They've already gone back to have dinner after they've killed Paul. He's left, as far as they know, dead. And parts of the Bible indicate that maybe he actually was dead. But he's under this pile of rocks, this old man. And he gets up. He's like, moves the rocks off. And what does he do? He goes back into the city. He says, I get whipped and I endure it. And you Corinthians go, look at the power of God. I get stoned, left for dead. I get up and I go back. And you Corinthians go, it's got to be the power of God. It's certainly not that old man. He says, and the good stuff. I get released from prison by an earthquake in Philippi. And you guys go, that's the power of God. You guys want to interact some more? We're getting closer. What, what, are, what are our two phrases? When I pause, you say, and when I pause again, you say, power of God. Verse 16, he says, therefore, we do not lose heart, even though our outward man is perishing. 
Yet the inward man is being renewed day by day. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. While we do not look at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. Verse 16, he says, therefore, we do not lose heart, even though our outward man is perishing. Now, you know, that's right, right? Your outward man is perishing. I know you think I'm 25, but it's not true. There are several industries built around this truth. Your outward man is perishing. I mean, you can nip Tuck, Botox, bypass, lift, augment, diet, exercise, makeup. You can pull enough skin off of you to make yourself a twin. (laughs) And still your outward man is perishing. (laughs) And so imagine before all of this was available. Looking at Paul coming out of Philippi. Looking at Paul coming out of Corinth, looking at Paul coming out of Ephesus. I mean, after his fifth beating, his third uh, whipping, he must have looked pretty ragged, don't you think? He says, therefore, we do not lose heart, even though our outward man is perishing. Yet the inward man is being renewed day by day. The older you get, the more precious this becomes, right? Even though my outward man is perishing, I can make the inside of me brand new. It's being renewed day by day. Let me ask you something convicting. Which did you spend more time on this week? The part of you that's perishing? The outward part of you? Or the part of you that's inside? If you spent more time on the outside of you, don't take this wrong, but it's hopeless. (laughs) It's like painting a sinking ship. You can focus on the outward part of you, and believe me, I think we should. Some. But in perspective, shouldn't we be spending more time, much more time, renewing the part of us that we're going to live with for the rest of eternity? This week, did you spend more time on the outside of the jar and neglect the treasure inside? Look at more of Paul's perspective, verse 17. He says, For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. (laughs) Now let me get this straight, Paul. What are you referring to as light affliction? (laughs) Would that be the whippings or the beatings or the stonings, the shipwreck, the robbers, the riots, the troubles with your own countrymen? And the list goes on and on. Paul, is that the light affliction you're referring to? Really? And Paul would say, well, yeah. And it's really, I mean, it's light. And it's also, he says, just for a moment. Really? Now, Paul, all of this stuff you've been going through, it's from city to city. It's constant almost with you, isn't it, Paul? 
And you're telling me it's just for a moment? Well, yeah, in perspective, Paul would say, yeah, it's just for a moment. He says this light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. This light affliction. Insert your own affliction here. Insert your own crushing struggle. For Lisa and me, autism. For you, it might be cancer. It might be the death of someone you love. Could be a job that you are struggling under the weight. For me, let's say I struggle under the weight of a son with autism for 60 more years in my life. How much of eternity does that equate to? It's a blink. It's a vapor. It's a tiny, tiny little sliver of a blink. And he's not only talking about the duration of the struggle, but also the weight of the struggle versus the weight of the glory. Because look, he says of all the things in, in chapter 11, he calls light affliction. Chapter 11, are, all these things are lightweight compared to the reward that's coming to him. Look at verse 17. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. He's got these two things on a balance, on a scale. He's like, when I weigh out the 40 years of my life that I've been just beaten and, and torn apart, he's like, when I weigh that out compared to what God has got for me in heaven... He's like, it's crazy. Paul saw, do you notice this? He says, this light affliction is working for us. <laughs> There's another question for you. Do you see the affliction in your life as working for you? Does it work for you? I mean, is it, are you appreciative? <laughs> if that's a, probably the wrong word. But is it working for you or against you? Do you feel like God is working for you or against you? I don't know why it's a, a, a sad confession, but sometimes I feel like, God, are you against me? Then I read something like this. I'm like, no, even my afflictions, he is working for me. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for me. A far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. Look at verse 18. While we do not look at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not, are not seen are eternal. There's so much in here, guys. Um, I'm going to wrap it up here in just a little bit. Um, so much stuff that you, I'd like to say, but here's the, the word look. Look at verse 18. But while we do not look, the word is scopio. It's the same place we get the word microscope or telescope it means to hone in to focus to study something to dwell on something to really really get a good view of something and paul says you can only understand if you're if you're a christian he says we don't focus on what we see but we focus on what we don't see okay what are the things that we see in paul's life whippings beatings stonings, all the stuff that he went through, that's what you see. What are the unseen things that Paul, 
things that Paul is focusing on. An eternal weight of glory. A, a grand reunion when Jesus says, look at these folks that you brought to me. When Jesus says, well done, thou good and faithful servant. When he gets to see all of the souls that benefited from his death and resurrection, Paul's own suffering and how God rose him up over and over and over again. Do you get it? That's how Paul kept going. He wasn't looking at the things that are seen. He was focusing on that which is unseen. Do you get it? What's the thing that's ever present in your mind most of the time? Your trials, your troubles. That's the stuff that you see. We should be looking at the things we don't see. The things that are awaiting for us. The great affliction is working for us if we will let it, this wonderful, stupendous glory that we can't even imagine. I have one illustration for you as we close. This idea of a light affliction, a, a quick momentary struggle versus this great reward. How many people know that Barry Bonds broke the, uh, the record this week? Okay, under, under dispute with a bunch of asterisks, right? But listen to this article. With the crack of the bat, a brief stillness settled over the right center field bleachers at AT&T Park as Barry Bonds' record-breaking homer rocketed toward the crowd. Then the scrum was on. As the specially marked baseball landed a few rows up, dozens of fans wrestled for it and the promise of riches it carried. In the middle of it all was 22-year-old New Yorker Matt Murphy, who emerged from beneath the pile, holding the ball. Bonds hit for a career home run number 756. His face was bloodied, and his clothes stretched and torn from his battle in the bleachers. A team of San Francisco police officers moved in, extracted Murphy from the crowd, and quickly led him through a tunnel and into a secure room. As he high-fived other fans, Murphy wearing a New York Mets jersey. No wonder he was beaten and bruised. He slid the ball into the back pocket of his plaid Bermuda shorts. Reporters screamed out questions, but all he managed to say was, I'm Matt Murphy from Queens, New York. Baseball memorabilia experts have pegged the ball's value at 400000 to $500,000. That's well below the $3 million fetched by the ball Mark McGuire hit to break Roger Maris' single-season home run record in 1998, but still a hefty sum. The struggle, the bloodied body, the torn clothes... Who's that sound like? Sounds like Jesus, and it sounds like Paul. This was a small price to pay for this guy, right? A, a light affliction just for a moment. And he has in his hand this reward, exceeding riches. But you notice, if I don't think, unless something's changed, he flew to Australia, this guy, afterwards. I don't think he's gotten his four hundred or $500,000 yet. It's still in his pocket, you know, the ball. So he is still awaiting a future rich, future riches, but he's already gone through the struggle. Paul would say the same thing about his treasure. He's like, I have this wonderful treasure and I, will be, I would be bloodied and bruised and beaten again if I, want, if I needed to be for this. Notice it said the guy had a, the ball in his Bermuda shorts pocket. 
But Paul's was just a little bit different. His was in a jar of clay, like you and me.